Hello, I'm Mike Baselli, your host for this podcast and the global community rallied around it. During this expert coronavirus update, we spent time with a nationally recognized community health worker turned entrepreneur to discuss the impact on social determinants of health during the pandemic. Manic Bot is a chief strategy officer of Healthify, a New York-based startup that provides leading solutions to address the social determinants of health at scale. By building infrastructure to formalize relationships between healthcare and community-based organizations, Healthify brings its partners one step closer to closing the health equity gaps in their communities. While together, Manic shared how Healthify is addressing COVID-19, both with its technology as well as its community partnerships and the early successes his ecosystem is experiencing. I'm grateful for Manic's continued devotion and advocacy for addressing the social determinants of health through equitable and collaborative partnerships between healthcare and social service organizations. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Manic, welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. No, thanks so much. Excited to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to gaining your perspective regarding COVID-19 and the impact this pandemic has had on social determinants of health and how you and your team at Healthify are contributing to the fight against the coronavirus. But before we dive into this important conversation, a bit of housekeeping. For our audience, while listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas with our guests and to interact with the entire community. Lastly, subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, Manic, I'd first like to start by asking you where things currently stand due to the coronavirus outbreak in regards to what you and your partners at Healthify are experiencing, as well as where things stand more broadly for us as a nation. And for our audience, we are recording this episode during the week of May 18th. It's important for me to date these episodes, given how fast the situation is changing. So with that, Manic, I'll open it up broadly and let you take it from there. Awesome. No, no, thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure uh, joining you here today and, and sharing a bit of our perspective on the space. And, you know, for us, a lot of our work is connecting families to social services in an accountable way via peers and providers. So we're seeing a really interesting perspective and we have a clear line of sight on what's happening in the social services landscape right now in relation to the epidemic. And the way we've thought through this is based on timelines. What was happening pre-COVID? What was happening as quarantining began? What's happening as quarantining is ending in certain states? And, and what does long-term recovery look like? So I'm going to talk about what we're seeing based on those buckets of time. And the main framework we're looking to apply here is demand and supply. What is the demand of social service needs? And what is the actual capacity for social services to meet that demand? So we look at before COVID, you know, we already have seen and know that the social service infrastructure here in the States is is not where it needs to be. Right? The infrastructure is not there to connect families with services. There's not a lot of capacity for different services like food and housing. So 
So we're starting from the groundwork of knowing that a lot of communities that we serve in this space from a public health perspective don't have the longstanding social services infrastructure in place even before the epidemic hit. And I think writ large what's happened with the epidemic is it's one, shining a really bright light on social needs and their impact on people's health and their impact on access and its impact on the prognosis of folks who are uh, positive for COVID-19. But ultimately, it's placing a really large strain on community organization uh, and, the, and the needs they have. So more specifically, let's talk through it. So right as quarantining began, a few things happened, right? First, we saw a lot of non-essential businesses close. We saw a huge spike in unemployment claims and a lot of folks followed. And the immediate impact on that was it really skyrocketed demand on the need for food and childcare across communities. If folks who've never needed access to a food service now are in the first time recognizing that their situation really is in an acutely food insecure state and they're going to need access to food. So we saw an increase in demand right as quarantine began. And on the capacity side, we saw a lot of community-based organizations close or reduce their hours because they didn't have existing funding streams. And also the core way a lot of these community partners work around different social services is via volunteers. And they saw a huge decrease in volunteer capacity, mainly because a lot of volunteers at these social services are seniors, which are in the high-risk category that were actively um, uh, going through quarantining. So right off the bat, we saw these two trend lines we didn't want to see, right? Increased demand for food and childcare, decreased capacity on the social services side. You know, now that as quarantine is ending, a few things are happening. There's a slight decrease in childcare demand but the food demand has remained elevated, if not increased. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some specific statistics there in, in a bit. But another thing we're seeing is, you know, shelter demand is increasing quite a bit as evictions rise. Some areas have implemented ways to prevent landlords from evicting folks. Some places have not. Uh, and we're seeing increased shelter demands uh, as well. On the community partner side, now we're seeing actually some community partners permanently closed due to low funding um, and an increased need for workforce development programs. The trend lines, again, are, are in directions we, we, we don't want to see as quarantine ends. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my tone from doom and gloom here in a second to talk about what does the future look like. And now when we get past quarantining and we think about long-term recovery, we're seeing, again, a lot of public benefit regulations reenacted to some, a lot of folks will lose access to some public benefit programs uh, in the intervening time. But I think one sign of hope to talk about what, what comes next is we're seeing a lot of new delivery models for social services emerge to meet this issue where we have a lot of demand and low capacity. And just to kind of point to some of the numbers around that, before the crisis, around 11 to 12 percent, depending on where you look at the numbers of U.S. households were experiencing some level of food insecurity. And right now, we're seeing it increase to around 32 percent which actually mimics pretty closely the expected unemployment rate over the next quarter of 32.1%, um, which is which is astonishingly high. And we also have seen in our own work in communities where part of what we do is we help folks find community services and coordinate referrals to food providers before COVID-19 and the pre-COVID-19 era, about 16% of all of the referrals we made to services were tied to food needs. And in the past month, it's skyrocketed at 36%, so over double. So we've seen this dramatic increase in food need and, and, and not enough supply and capacity to meet it. 
So that's where we're sitting right now. Um, and, you know, Mike, happy to talk through what this means for the future um, and, and what does it mean from a perspective of innovation and, and how do we rally around this and what does it mean from a policy standpoint. But that's the current state of the land when we think about social services impact in relation to COVID-19. Well, and I appreciate that, Monica. And yes, we are going to talk about kind of future state, where you see things heading, because, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to spend time with innovative minds like you and leaders that are building new companies, new innovations and, and new models. So, for instance, like telehealth, right, that genie is now out of the bottle. Hopefully she'll never go back in and the wide dissemination and right. adoption of telehealth as one example. But before we start diving into that, Monica, I do have a couple quick questions. Because this pandemic is a global phenomenon, are we seeing the same types of social service needs around the world or are there some that are more pronounced in some countries versus others? Is there anything to learn or to share from that perspective, given this is a global crisis? Yeah, no. So we, so we're seeing similar needs globally. A lot of our work is here in the U.S. But one thing that is important is when we look at the crisis from a global perspective, what does the social services infrastructure look like in other nations? And when we look at some of the European nations, for example, one of the big ten poles of, of our work is we always hear the refrain: we spend a lot on healthcare, we don't get the outcomes. When you add in our percentage of healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP plus social services spending, we're about comparable in terms of the total amount to other nations. It's just that we're flipped. Other nations are spending far more on social services and public health infrastructure. Some of the funding for some benefit programs and social service infrastructure in other nations that were hit hard, like Italy, look very different than what they look like in the U.S. However, the core infrastructure and demand issues we're seeing still high in other nations. So we think it's a pretty similar story, but we don't have the hard data, at least from our perspective, to really wrap our heads around and arms around what the delta of gap is in some of these other nations, but know it to be a huge issue just by the nature of, of what's happening across the globe in relation to income streams for folks in their lives. Well, it certainly is going to be fascinating to study for, for many years to come. Uh, and again, before we head into kind of future state and, and what you guys are working on at Healthify, we did receive some questions from some of our community members over on our free global online community, passionatepioneers.com. And this might be a good time to ask some of those because it will kind of set the stage uh, for you to share a little bit of that future state. So Doug, actually, one of our community members, uh, he asks, what strategies are being implemented to address social determinants of health? and do they differ from pre-COVID efforts? Yeah. So one of the big things that's happening, writ large, pre and post-COVID, is how does the healthcare infrastructure, meaning health plan, clinical partner, and how does the public sector work with community organizations delivering social service interventions in local communities? You know, how do we make sure the health plan care manager can coordinate care with Meals on Wheels, can coordinate care with a transportation vendor or a job training program? There's a lot of efforts around allowing folks to coordinate information and really building these networks, kind of like a clinical network except in the social services landscape. And that's primarily where we, we play and, and spend a lot of our time. I'm an ex-community health worker from East Baltimore, and that was one of the biggest challenges is how do we actually coordinate these services for folks in need? So a lot of our work is helping build these networks in an accountable way and making sure that health plan provider, community partner, and other uh, uh, conveners in the community can coordinate around social needs. That's staying. That's still a pretty common way to address these challenges. But now what's really changing is 
what is the funding stream for community partners? Because we have this capacity need and funding is a way to alleviate that and address the sustainability challenge. And how do we get more innovative and creative around some of the solutions in this time? So I'll call out one specific example. So we do a lot of work out in, uh, in, in Kansas City. And, you know, a lot of communities are starting with what's called rapid response funds. What is a, a, you know, a slosh fund of folks to contribute to, whether it be the private sector or the public sector, to really give funds out to community-based organizations or other entities quickly to address recovery. One of the big challenges, though, is there's a lot of food suppliers and food banks in the area that generally are, you know, providing food in person in a brick-and-mortar setting. And obviously, they couldn't do that anymore due to the social distancing efforts and the quarantine that's happening in Kansas City. So that's where it really prompted us and everyone in the community to think about how do we get creative around addressing the food needs? Because we know that there are you know, school children who are not getting the school lunch program anymore. We know there's folks who are diagnosed positive for COVID-19 and are in their home and aren't able to access food if they were previously food insecure. There's a lot of stress applied on the food insecurity conversation I talked about earlier. So the innovation was the community food providers, us, health plans like Blue KC, ride-sharing companies like Rise Health got together and said, we're going to deploy a delivery model for a lot of the food and the surplus in food storage, because a lot of folks weren't accessing the food in person, and deliver these 15-day supplies of food for thousands of Kansas City residents. Um, and and I basically get the funding for that from the Rapid Response Fund and Recovery Fund itself. So what that really presented was, here's the need. The core of what was trying to be solved for, getting folks access to community-based partners, not too different except the methodology and the solutioning around how we actually make that happen and how can we be creative around the resources we have on the table. That's what really happened in the Kansas City community. I think it's a great model for other folks uh, across the nation of how the resources in the community are there. It's you know, how creative can we be in terms of putting things together logistically and aligning incentives to make sure we can respond to the crisis and the nature of the crisis in a pretty effective and innovative way. So that's one interesting model of what we've seen uh, happen post-COVID in terms of innovation, uh, really redefining and redesigning how some of these social services are delivered and what they mean. Well, thank you for outlining that, Monica. And of course, I do need to take a quick pause and an aside as a proud podcast papa. You just mentioned one of our previous guests, Imran Kronk and the team over at Ride Health doing phenomenal work. So great to hear uh, teams like yours and him are, you know, pairing up, working together to deliver, you know, exceptional outcomes for some of our community members around the nation. I'm a big fan of their camp over at Ride Health. They're doing great work. Agreed. So let's go in turn. We have uh, two more questions and then we're going to start heading into uh, what you guys are building over at Healthify. Alirius, uh, part of our community, again, over at passionatepioneers.com. She asked two really good questions. I'll, I'll first tee up the first one of two. She says, I know that there are the key uh, social determinants of health that are traditionally monitored, have those items or is that list considered, have they changed as a a result of COVID-19 or are there new ones that should be on the list or should be added or thought through? Has there been a change of what we consider a social determinant of health pre and post pandemic? Great question. And there's one specific need that comes to mind, which is social isolation. So social isolation was always a component of a social determinant framework, especially in the Medicare and Medicare Advantage population. But I think a lot of folks in the space, you know, know about social isolation, but it was hard to wrap your heads around what does that mean in someone's life? What is its impact on life expectancy? What is its impact on mental health? And I think everyone listening today can probably feel that. 
I think everyone has felt what social isolation can look like based on everyone being quarantined for so long. So social isolation is something that's been uh, top of mind for us um, across a lot of the plans we work with, a lot of the members we work with to say, this is a time where we expect social isolation to be not only an acute need, but again, requires some pretty creative solutions of how we address social isolation issues uh, you know, across the U.S. And there are a lot of great companies in the space doing this work, uh, Papa, Wider Circle, a handful of others um, that are either structuring visits to folks in their home, telehealth visits, uh, to make sure there's a point of contact for a senior to build a relationship with, to really make sure they understand that they're not isolated. Um, so we think that need has really come, uh, was always under the surface, but I think this crisis has made the empathy around that need significantly higher because we all experience it. Well, thank you for that. Of course, you just mentioned another previous guest. So you're making me a very proud podcast host today, Andrew and the team of Papa, just an unbelievable organization. So proud of what they're building over there for our senior community. It's great work over there. So let's now turn to actually Doug's teeing you up perfectly from our community, Monica. He says, are there any technologies that do a particularly good job of addressing social determinants of health? For example, community networks like Healthify. He did not know that you were going to be the guest. So he's teeing you up perfectly. So let's dive into it. Give us a little bit of that elevator pitch. What have you guys built to Healthify? How is it being uh, applied to this current pandemic? Yeah. And the first thing, which might be shocking, is technology cannot solve these problems. Full stop. Right? There's no magic bullet here. And, and that's why when we thought about our work, technology in our world is an enabler. A lot of what we do is building accountable networks of agencies to meaning what's the right community partner to work with, how do we help them, evaluate them, negotiate a contract with them, monitor their performance, and how do we bring that high-quality, accountable network of community partners to the community, to the health plan, to the risk-bearing provider? And then once we have that network, how do we, one, make sure that we have the technology in place so folks can actually coordinate amongst all these entities and really empower members and users and care managers and community health workers, you name it, to do this work, but then how do we make sure we have the data to prove the ROI? And that's a really important point because ultimately, you know, we're positioning to a health plan that it makes a lot of sense for you to solve for social needs and coordinate with community partners and really think of it as a clinical network or an extension of your clinical network because there's real hard ROI to drive the intervention. So a lot of our work is how do we help support the ROI conversation, the financial case to a health plan around community networks and social service intervention, because ultimately, as I talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the big problem in social services and SDOH is capacity and sustainability. There's not enough community partners and services to really support folks, and we need to be creative and thoughtful around how we build a financial case and ROI narrative for these interventions for things to scale. And that's a big component of our work outside of the technology is making sure that sustainability is kept top of mind when these networks are, are put into place to benefit the health plan. And so I've seen a lot of innovators like you over the past number of months since the outbreak has uh, hit all of us either pivot yeah. part or all of their business to help address COVID-19. Have you guys at Healthify done anything specific to address the pandemic, given where you were at as an organization? Has there been anything specific that has developed in your camp? Yeah, yeah, no, we've done, uh, we've done actually quite a bit. <laughs> so a couple of things. The first, first thing is we supported a lot with specific delivery model changes. So I called out one example of um, delivering food 
by connecting the payer, the community partner, the food banks, and ride-sharing partners and communities to really innovate the delivery model for food. We're also doing some innovative delivery models for utility assistance, where a lot of folks, uh, like United Way of Greater Topeka, identified a lot of at-risk residents, and usually utility vouchers are running out, um, and we're supporting with a, a set of utility vouchers to support during the extended shelter-in-place orders in that area. So one big bucket was kind of directly supporting CBOs with the transformation necessary during the climate crisis. Number two was helping community partners uh, more generally access funds. So we actually have dedicated information and a, a page on our website for community partners to share best practices, but also get access to different grant opportunities and funding opportunities to support them during this time. That's one big bucket. Second big bucket is data. So we've been helping share our aggregated data to help folks think through recovery prioritization because we have information on what are the needs in the community, how are they changing, what referrals are working, what interventions are changing in the community, um, and people have been accessing that data and, and able to understand uh, better around what the needs are in their community to, to better inform their own decisions. Third, community partners have always gotten access to the platform for free, and they're getting and onboarding more and more folks there as well, thoughtfully, because there's a, a balance between we want to support the community partner and not inundate them in a time of crisis. And then fourth is we've gone ahead and revalidated a lot of the information in our platform. So what I mean by that is, you know, we'll have hundreds of community partners are working with in the community, and we know that due to funding changes, the eligibility, the services, the hours might be changing on the fly. So we want to make sure that we have an honest representation of what's going on, happening on the ground. And we've seen about 75% of community partners change either their eligibility, their hours of operation, the services they deliver in the past 60 days. So a lot of our work is making sure that we're representing uh, a clear and transparent view of what's happening in the community partner landscape to all of our partners, and we've shared that uh, across our client base and user base as well. So a lot of different things. I'm probably missing something for my team um, on, on all the work we're doing. We've done things like specific hackathons uh, to, to build unique solutions for the space across the company uh, based on our unique point of sight in different communities. So a lot of our energy is trying to be spent on looking for silver linings and seeing where we can help. Well, and of course, I'm sure as this you know pandemic continues to evolve and, and change and present new challenges, there will be even more updates coming from the Healthify camp. So with that, Monica, as we continue to get close to winding this down, where can we find you online? Where are some contact points so we can continue to stay abreast of your wonderful work at Healthify and for others to get involved? Yeah, yeah. So we um, can find us on Twitter at Healthify US on LinkedIn as well. I'm really excited to share that in a pretty short time, we're going to be um, sharing a pretty robust ROI study with some of our work with CMS at Reading Hospital uh, that I'm pretty excited to share with the community and, and, the, and, and the space writ large, going back to the conversation on ROI, um, specifically looking at ED utilization. So keep a lookout for that. And I'm happy to share that with the audience. Uh, that's about Absolutely. And all those contact points will be listed over on our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. This episode will have an entire article posted where you can find all the resources, listen to this episode, share amongst your friends and colleagues. And given that so many incredible leaders in our industry are, are listening to this podcast, Monica, I know a lot will be interested to continue to further the conversation. So thank you for those touch points as well. So again, Monica, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We know how busy you and the team are over there doing wonderful work across our country. Know that you have a big fan over here in Colorado. Continue to keep us updated as you continue to help fight 
fight this pandemic across the country. Again, Monik, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode. 